Christmas, Woodland Hills. Good to see all you guys who are in here in the building and all you guys who are visiting online or participating online. It's just good to be together on this Christmas Eve service. Um, I, I, before I get going, want to reiterate uh, something Shauna said. And it's just that um, I, I'm just really proud of you guys. I'm proud of this congregation. I'm proud of this community. Uh, every time, or almost every time, we've come and said, here's the need. You know, here's something we want to do. Uh, we want to raise money for, you know, for other folks to help homeless, to help you know, different ministries. You always step up. You more than step up. We always exceed it. And, and I, I just... Uh, I, I just thank God for that. It, it's, it, it's what allows us to do big things. We can do more together than we can do individually. That's the whole point of doing things as a unity. And, and, and that makes all of our lives significant. You know, every prayer you pray for another person, every dime you give for another person, every, we're learning how to love together, right? We're learning how to sacrifice for others together. And that's what it's all about. And that makes our life significant. That's the whole point of it. So I just am, am, am glad that... Uh, to be a part of the congregation that has the spirit of generosity. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing is, you create a momentum. You start to pull the best out of each other. And uh, I just hope we keep on growing in that direction. In fact, let's just commit. Let's keep on growing in that direction, all right? It's, it's a beautiful direction. It's what it's all about. Uh, well, I, I'm, if you're visiting, I'm Greg Boyd. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here, and, and so I'm really good to have, really good to ha- glad to have you uh, visiting us. Um, I, I'm not that much of a sports fan, you know, like real guy preachers always use sports analogies all the time, probably too much. I, I, I don't much because it's just not my, my, my gig. Um, however, um, when, when, when the Vikings are winning, well, I'll, I'll become a little bit of a fan. You know, I, I'm, I'm the most fair-weathered, fickle fan you can imagine. But this year has been pretty interesting. Uh, I, so I, I started watching the games. Uh, either I watch it with my, my, my son-in-law or my grandson, or if it's by myself, I'll just record it and speed watch it through or whatever. But uh, I, I, though I'm not much of a sports fan, I, I'm, I'm going to tell a sports story here. It's about what happened two weeks ago. Oh, by the way, for the, if you don't want to know what, if the Vikings won today or not, c- cover your ears right now. They won. <laughs> 27-24, last few seconds, kicked a field goal. Every game has been within one score. That's the thing that's interesting. Well, two weeks ago, one week ago, last Sunday, thank you, Mary, um, it, it was the craziest game I'd ever seen. The first half of the, of the game was terrible. It was absolutely abysmal. Did some of you watch that? It was disgusting. It was the worst football I've ever seen. Everything that could go wrong for the Vikings went wrong. And we were down 33 nothing at halftime. That's a lot. No one's ever come back from, a, 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 from that big of a deficit. So I know two people who were at that game. One of them left at halftime. They were so disgusted. Let's get out of here. Uh, they gave up hope, and they went home. The other person, my son-in-law, stayed. He said, you know, yeah, it's unlikely, but they could make a game out of it. There's a little bit of hope, so he, he hung in there. Besides, if you're going to put that much money out for a ticket, you don't want to waste it by going home. So... How my money's worth of misery. So uh, I, I kept on watching. I was going to turn it off, but I kept on watching just because it was so bad. I thought this might turn into a, this, a complete slaughter or 60 nothing or whatever. So it's kind of interesting because it's so bad. But then they start coming back. And see, here's the thing. So one held out hope. My son-in-law held out hope. The other guy didn't. I guarantee you this other guy, as he's driving home, still listening to the game on the radio, he's going to start kicking himself because he just... Walked out of the best comeback in all in NFL history. And we broke a, a, a total record. He was there and he walked out because he lost hope. This morning we're talking about hope. 
And whether you hold on to hope or not can make a really big difference in your life. There's some things you can have, some experiences you can have, things that happen in your life that you only have if you're holding on to hope. And you're not going to have if you don't hang on to hope. So we're in this Christmas series, and, and we've talked about how Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, Christmas lights. And he's the peace that shines in the chaos. He's the meaning that shines, it pushes back the meaninglessness, of dark, dark meaninglessness. Uh, he's he's, he's the, the, the Emmanuel who pushes back on loneliness, as Dan preached last week, having had about eight hours to prepare for it. Wasn't that a great sermon? Just like that. That guy's incredible. He's incredible. And so this morning we're talking about hope. Jesus is the hope that pushes back on despair, that pushes back on hopelessness. Um, truth is that all of our actions are guided by hope. The reason why my son-in-law stayed in the game is that he had hope. The reason the other person left was he didn't have hope. And so he was just hoping to not waste any more time. That's why he left. Hope guides all of our actions. If you go shopping, it's because you hope you're going to find what, you're, what you need. If you go to the doctor, you're hoping to find a remedy for your illness, whatever's wrong with you. Uh, everything we do is, is guided by, by hope. You go to college because you hope that you're going to get a degree, and you hope that uh, that'll help you get a better job. You get married because you hope you're going to live happy ever after. We're always guided by hope. It's the point of all that we do. The question then is this. Our our life is like a bunch of stories of hope. When you go shopping, there's a story of hope that, that's going on there. If you stay at the Vikings game, there's a story of hope you're living in. So our life is, is a, a bunch of stories of hope, driven by hope. The million-dollar question is, is, what is, is there an ultimate story that you're living in which gives your life an ultimate hope? If you have an ultimate story that you're living in and an ultimate hope that you're living for, and see, that ultimate hope is then, hope always directs our life. You'll live differently if you're living with an, with an ultimate story, a long story with an ultimate hope, differently than you will if you don't have that hope. In some ways, the Christmas story is God's answer to this question. Does your life, is there a hope for your life? Is there a point to the story that you're in? And the answer, I'm sure it won't surprise anyone here, is the answer is a definitive yes. Jesus is the hope of the world. Uh, we're all part, whether people know it or not, they're part of a grand story that's headed towards a glorious climactic ending. And that's the hope of the world. And that, the name of that hope is Jesus. So, um, say this about hope. I mean, we watched the kids having, giving their definitions of hope, and they were wonderful and cute and adorable. Uh, and one girl got it really well, though, when she said, hope is like a wish, but it's, it, it's more deep. It's like a wish, but it's deeper than that. And, and, and that really is the biblical concept of hope. The biblical concept of hope is not like a wish or a passive thing like, well, I hope that turns out all right. No, it's something you're invested in. Uh, biblical hope is, is a confident assurance that something will be the case to the point where you're willing to lay your life down the line for it. You live a certain way. Faith is or hope is anchored in faith. Here's a passage that I, 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 I quote a lot because it's so important. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's the definition of faith. It says that faith is the substantiation. The Greek word there is hypostasis, to, to make something a, a substance, a reality. Faith is the substantiation of things that are hoped for, things that you anticipate to be true. You, you envision it as a substantial reality, concretely, vividly, as though it had already happened. You hold that in mind. And then as you hold that in mind, it says, 
uh, faith is the substance, the substantiating of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Elenkos is the word there in Greek. And, and, and what he's saying is that as you hold this vision in your mind, it creates in you this conviction that it will be so. The hope deepens the more you envision this. And what happens when you get that conviction then is you start to live a certain way. Believing that this will be true, I'm going to live as though that's true. And see, it's given at the beginning of chapter 11 in Hebrews because the whole chapter then gives illustrations of people who did this. They're all the Heroes Hall of Fame, it's sometimes called. And all these folks, they were given a promise of God, and they, they lived their life marching towards it, as it were. As the author in Hebrews 11 puts it, they were, they were looking for a heavenly city, the promise of God. They never received the promise in this lifetime, but they, hang on, they held on to this hope, and it caused them to live well, differently than they would have if they hadn't had that hope. They're heroes of faith because they accomplished great things by this faith. And the faith is what is, 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 drives the hope. So we're going to look at this hope concept and look how Jesus brings this hope into our life. I, I want to do it by looking at a guy in, in the Luke narrative, uh, Luke infancy narrative. One of the things I love about both the infancy narrative in Luke and in Matthew is that Usually when a king's born in the world, you know, all the high and mighty muckety-muck celebrities get to go, and, and us peons don't. But when Jesus is born in the world, it's all the peons, the nobodies that show up, and the high and mighty folks are, are, are completely unaware of it. Um, and so we have these random people, these nobodies, that just show up. The shepherds, you know, and the magi from the east. And then in Luke's narrative, there's, there's Anna and Elizabeth. Uh, there's Mary and Joseph. They're, they're nobodies. These are people who, if they weren't found in the biblical narrative, we never would have known about them. Well, one of these guys, these random folks that show up in the birth narrative, is this guy named Simeon. And here's what we read about Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 33. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that, the, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents of Jesus brought in the child Jesus, they were going to dedicate him on the eighth day, as the law required. They came in to do for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. All right. So here's Simeon, this random righteous guy. Um, He's righteous in part because he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. That's part of what made a Jew devout. You're looking forward to this consolation of Israel. Now, that phrase, consolation of Israel, is theologically packed. Uh, it comes out of Isaiah. In fact, most of this comes out of Isaiah. Part of it's quoting him verbatim. And um, uh, what we find is, is that in the immediate context, it was referring to Israel being in exile. They were under the captivity to the Babylonians, and the Lord was promising that they could someday come back from exile. And, and then they had the consolation of Israel, the restoration of Israel. 
And part of what it meant to be restored as Israel being restored and reconciled to God as they're being consoled is that now they will fulfill the mission that God raised Israel up to fulfill. God raised up Israel not just to be a blessed special people, but to rather be the means by which God blesses the whole world. That promise goes back to God's word to Abraham. I'm going to, make, I'm going to bless many nations by your descendants. Uh, that, that, that was the role that Israel was to play. And that's why Simeon here, he's, as he's praising God for this consolation of Israel, he'd been looking forward to this, he now, he now says, okay, here I'm seeing what I was looking for. I'm seeing salvation. Because it's salvation that's being prepared in, before all peoples. And a light of revelation to the Gentiles. See, that was Israel's role. That's what they were to do. They were to be the invitation to bring other nations into the covenant that they had with Yahweh. Because God's goal has always been to save and love the entire whole world. So Israel's to be the means of doing that. And so to say that he was looking for the consummation or the consolation of Israel is to say he was looking forward to the restoration of Israel, which is to say he's looking forward to the time when all the nations will be gathered together and come under the salvation of Yahweh. The consolation of Israel then is the consolation of the entire world. This is the grand finale of the story of God. It's the grand victory when God's love will conquer all. Love will win. And this is why he says that when salvation has been shining to the Gentiles and, and um, revelation has been coming to the Gentiles, this will be to the glory of Israel. Because the glory of Israel, Israel shines when everyone else shines because Israel's role is to draw the world into the covenant with Yahweh by shining, by manifesting his character, by proclaiming his law. So this consolation of Israel is a, is a packed concept. In Acts 3, they just refer to this, the summation, the culmination of God's story at the end of the age. They refer to it as the restoration of all things. God's going to fix this broken world, heal this wounded world, restore this alienated world. And this is what Simeon was looking for. This is what his heart yearned to see. Now, like most Jews, Simeon believed, because this is found in the Old Testament, Simeon believed that this consummation of the ages, the culmination of God's story, um, its restoration of all things, it would happen when the Lord would send his Messiah. Messiah was just to be an anointed person. Jesus Christ. Christ is the word for anointed. And so it's, it's synopsis with, with, with Messiah, the anointed one. And so they believed that God would send the Messiah. And the, the Messiah then would raise up God's people to overthrow Israel's en enemies. They thought the way, the way that Israel would be restored, well, it would have to involve vanquishing Israel's enemies. And then God would then use this Messiah to then transform Israel into the nation it was supposed to be and then save the world. That's how the plan was supposed to go. And so he was looking for this Messiah. It seems that he yearned to see this consolation of Israel so thoroughly and so deeply that the Lord blessed him by saying, you know what, I, 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 you, will, you won't die until you've seen the Lord's Messiah. Because when you see the Lord's Messiah, that, then you'll know, it'll confirm that the consummation of the ages has begun. The consolation of Israel has begun. The restoration of all things has begun. So Simeon received this, this promise. So Mary and Joseph then are going to the temple to dedicate Jesus as, as the law requires. So the Holy Spirit says to Simeon, hey, get yourself down to the temple. Because you're about to see what you've been looking for. See what you've been waiting for. So Simeon goes to the temple. There sees the Christ child. The Holy Spirit reveals to him that this is the Messiah. And then Simeon says, after he praises God and says all the things that the Messiah is going to accomplish, he says, now I can die. Now I can die in peace. 
In fact, he uses the present tense. It's a weird, he phrases it weird. Um, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. Like, I'm right now dying. <laughs> but the, the way it comes out, it's almost like, well, the fact that Simeon could say, now I can die in peace, shows you that the only thing that was keeping him alive was waiting to see that this, this Messiah. He was living for this. And it's almost like he had an assignment. He says, now, now, Lord, you may dismiss your servant. It's like, the Lord, it was not just a privilege of his that he was going to get to witness to Christ, but it was like an assignment. You're going to bear witness to this. You're supposed to be there. And I'm not letting you die until you see this Christ child. So when he finally sees the Christ child, he's able to say, okay, take me now. Now, the, the, the question is this. So this guy, he was only living just to see this child. That's all, that's all that mattered to him. And the question is why? Like, especially because... In saying that, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. I, I want to die and go home. Uh, he's, he's acknowledging that this, isn't gonna, this child's not going to benefit him personally. It, it's, uh, he, he's checking out real soon. So this consolation of Israel and the revelation of the Gentiles and the transformation of the world and turning the whole thing upside, he's, he, he's not going to see any, any of that. But clearly it didn't matter to him. You see... Simeon was living in a narrative. We all live in a narrative, some narrative or other, a story we tell ourselves. And the story that he lived in wasn't a story that began with himself or ended with himself. Most people live in that kind of a story, and that's why self-interest is what drives everything they do. Simeon wasn't living in that story. And he clearly he had a hope that didn't begin with himself and didn't end with himself. Simeon was rather anchored into and identified with this story of God. Um, he, he was anchored into the story that it wasn't centered on himself. It, it, his identity, his purpose, his meaning, everything about him was fully invested in this story of God. The story of God creating this world, but then this world falling into darkness. He was anchored in, in, in the story of, of God then working to redeem the world and raising up Israel to do it. He was anchored in the story of the Messiah that was going to come and was going to Liberate Israel and then liberate the entire world and turn the world upside down. That, he, he was identified with that. So it didn't matter to him whether he saw it all happen or not. Just having it confirmed that it was going to happen was enough for him to have this peace. Now, I, I'm ready to go now. He was fulfilled when he was assured that the story of God was going to be fulfilled. And when you're anchored in something bigger than yourself, you see, then what happens to you doesn't bother you nearly as much. If you are your whole universe, well, then everything that happens to you bothers you a whole lot. But when your identity and your meaning and purpose is anchored in something that didn't begin with you and won't end with you, well, there can be a peace that passes understanding. Amen. There's, that's the kind of peace that the world can't give and the world can't take. Hallelujah. He's living in this hope. And see, in doing that, Simeon really is, is, is illustrating in an exemplary way what, what, what biblical faith really is all about. Biblical faith isn't, I, I, I hope this is going to turn out okay. I wish it would turn out okay. It, it's this investment. It's this confidence, assurance. It's living in a certain way. It's holding something in mind. It's marching in a certain direction. And throughout the Bible, you'll find that biblical faith is always looking forward. It goes back to Genesis 3. First Messianic prophecy. The Lord's right in the middle of announcing a judgment. He says, no, one of your descendants is going to crush the head of this, 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 this serpent. It won't always be like this, the Lord is saying, right from the get-go. This world's going to be fallen now because of the fall. There will be a lot of pain. But in the middle of it all, he lets us know that it won't always be like this. He gives us a hope. He gives us a promise. 
that this Messiah is coming. And so throughout the Old Testament, people are looking for this. They get clearer and clearer about what's entailed in this, but they're always looking forward. And so Simeon was righteous. And the way Luke phrases it, 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 it has this connotation that he was a righteous and devout man precisely because he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Part of what it means to be devout is that you're trusting the promises of God and you're letting it impact your life. And so he's, he's living for this, literally living for this, expecting it to happen in his lifetime. And that hope is what, 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 what spurs him on. And you find that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but here's where the plot thickens. See, Simeon, I'm quite sure, when he says that this Messiah is going to bring about the salvation to the Gentiles and the consolation of Israel and the glory of Israel, he's probably thinking this is going to happen really quickly. And most Jews of the time thought that this would happen really quickly. You see this in all, whenever the random folks who show up in Jesus' narrative, whenever they speak, they speak this way. Like Mary, for example, says, this child that's been given to me is going to cause the many, to low, many who are low to be raised up and it's going to bring down many who are high and mighty. It's going to send the rich away empty-handed, but it's going to get, he's going to give good things to the poor. He's going to bring justice to, to, to the world and, and, and get rid of the evil and the sin and the violence. And, and they say all these magnificent things. This Messiah is going to transform the world. And Jesus, he initially gives people every reason that you could ever give people to convince them that he is the Messiah. He makes the radical claims of having this special relationship with the Father, and, and he speaks with this unprecedented authority. That convinced a lot of people. He does these miracles. He heals the sick and he heals the lame. Several times he raises the dead, multiplies loaves and fishes, casts out demons wherever he goes. This is the kind of thing that people that what the Messiah would do. And so he, he gets a lot of people believing that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And they keep on wanting him to be king and try to make him king. And like, when are you going to kick some Roman butt and liberate Israel and transform the world? But Jesus, even though he does all this great stuff, he gets himself crucified. He gets himself crucified. What's up with that? I, I, your mom said you were going to like raise up the low and tear down the proud and transform the world and bring all this justice. What happened? And you know, Jesus rose from the dead, right? And, and he appeared to 500 people. That's wonderful. And God then has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we are empowered to love the way he loved. But we still don't see this world turned upside down, do we? We, we, we don't see the consolation of Israel. We don't see the glory of Israel. We don't see all the nations rushing to God through Israel. We don't see the restoration of all things. Uh, you look around, and the world's still got a whole lot of violence, a whole lot of sadness. If anything, it seems to me it's actually going in the wrong direction. doesn't seem like that to you. It's not going in the direction of love winning. It looks like love's losing. What's up with this? Why is this? He comes. He does great deeds, but he doesn't transform the world. We're still waiting for that. Now, why is that? Um, and here I could go into a big theological discussion about the already and the not yet, and you know, oh, realize eschatology and all the rest. I'm not going to go there, and you can say thank you. Um, but uh, I, I, I will say this. Here's one of the reasons why Jesus didn't immediately accomplish all that he will accomplish, all that all the folks in the birth narrative said he's going to accomplish. And it, one reason is this. The most distinctive revelation of God in the New Testament is that God is love, and love is defined by the cross. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. What is love? 1 John 3, 16. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
So God's very essence is cross-like love, other-oriented love, self-sacrificial love. That's, that, that's who God is. And since that's the essence of God, that's, that's who God is, then everything God does is an expression of self-sacrificial love. Otherwise, God would be acting in contradiction to himself, and God never does that. God cannot lie. So whenever God acts, it expresses the cross. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says that to the world, the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness, but to us, those who accept this revelation, it is the power of God. And that word power in Greek is, is the word ergos. We get the word energy from it. It's, it's what accomplishes work, what, what, what does work. And so whenever God expends energy, whenever God does anything, it looks like the cross. The cross is the power of God. It's the only power that God, God relies on. And so this is the power that God is using to turn the world upside down, to transform the world. And Paul also talks about this in Colossians chapter 1. Now listen to this. He says, I love this, this verse. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of God, every bit of God was there, was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That's the power of God. By making peace through the blood of his cross. It's not that there's any magic in in Jesus' blood, but that phrase, the blood of the cross, simply means the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, it's, it's synonymous with God's self-sacrificial love. And so what Paul is saying is that now God is at work to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth and to bring peace to all things by means of what he did on Calvary, by means of his cross-like love. That's the power of God that's going to transform the world. So why is this taking so long? Well, here's the thing. You know, the Jews thought that the Messiah would come and would violently overthrow Israel's enemies and would violently transform the world. And that's why it could happen quickly. The nice thing about violence is it's, it's quick. You can get a lot done quickly if, you're gonna, if you rely on violence. And even sometimes it will look good in the short run. Like, well, that was good and that was easy. But Jesus tells us, he teaches us that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's why he tells Peter to put away your sword. Uh, there's, there's no use for the sword in the kingdom of God. Uh, what Jesus tells us is that, 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 that violence is always cyclical. Uh, retaliation has a way of just coming back on you. You just get caught in a vortex. So it's impossible to build an eternal kingdom that is peaceful on the basis of violence. It's impossible to build an everlasting kingdom of love on the basis of violence. It's like Martin Luther King said, the ends, can't, the, the end, the ends and the means have to be in agreement with each other. You'll never fight your way into peace. You'll never hate your way into love. It just doesn't work like that. If you want peace, you've got to start with peace. You've got to work it with peace. If you want love, you've got to go by means of love. And that's why the way of God is not the way of violence. It's the way of other-oriented self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love is the power of God, hallelujah, the power that God relies on. And what it is to be a child of God is that you, we also then rely on that kind of power, and we participate with God. We partner with God in this work of reconciliation and this work of bringing shalom to this world. And that's our privilege, and that's our honor, and that's our responsibility. He does it by means of other-oriented love. So the violence, yeah, you can get a lot done with violence. It's fast. It's efficient. But that's not the way of God. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't kill his enemies. He allows himself to be killed by his enemies because that's what his enemies need him to do. And love, while violence is quick, love is slow. 
Uh, if you're not going to coerce somebody into agreeing with you, and you're going to rather try to win their hearts by means of serving them, well, it's going to take a while. It takes time. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love, love's got to be patient, long-suffering. It doesn't happen fast. In fact, love is synonymous with suffering and sacrifice. You're sacrificing for another. And so to live in love is to live in hope and in patience and to be, live in having this long-suffering attitude. And so, so it, what it means is that we are, we are in the same position that, that Simon was. Or Simeon was. We're still waiting. We're still looking. The Jews had been looking for thousands of years before Christ came the first time, and now we've waited 2,000 years, and we're, we're looking for him to come a second time. Because he promised that he would return. And when he returns, he promised that he would set it all right. He would fulfill all that he set out doing the first time. All that he accomplished on the cross would then be fully manifested in this second coming. And so, like Simeon, our identity, the meaning of our life, is anchored in this looking forward to the Messiah, who will bring the consolation of Israel and then the consolation of all nations and the restoration of all things. And, and like Simeon, we're to be looking for this. We're to be anchored in a story that's bigger than ourselves and anchored in a hope that's bigger than ourselves because we're to be anchored in the story of God that's centered on the story of Jesus and Jesus is the hope of the world. So throughout the New Testament, this is what people are looking forward to. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He goes uh, to the Corinthians, you're, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift, any chrismata, uh, as, you wait for, as you eagerly wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ, or for Jesus Christ to be revealed. He just describes the Christian life is, is, is a matter of we eagerly are waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ, for him to appear. By the way, by the way that, that's the word apocalypse. We're waiting for the apocalypse, which is the revelation, where we'll see Jesus as he is, and we'll see the, the world will be transformed to be the way God always wanted to be transformed. And everything he accomplished on the cross will now be manifested throughout the whole cosmos. We're going to be eagerly waiting for this. Philippians 3, Paul says that, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for, the, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of heaven before we're citizens of the United States or whatever country you're a citizen of. And, uh, and, and, and part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus is that we are looking to heaven, uh, which when you hear heaven, don't think up there, think out there, future. It, it's, it's what's coming towards us. And we're waiting for the return of our king. Um, he's our one Lord, he's our one master, he's our one savior, and we're waiting for him to, to return. And we do it e eagerly because this world we know is not at present, the way God wanted the world to be. God didn't envision, didn't aim at this world with all of his toxicity, all of his hatred, the arguing, the bickering, the fighting, the backbiting, the prejudice, the xenophobia, the sexism, and all the rest. It's messed up. It's messed up. And seeing that this world is so messed up, so wounded, so broken, it should break our hearts and make us yearn for the Lord to come and fix it. To restore this. Now, I don't have a clue what that's going to look like. I really don't. I used to have a clue what it looked like. I used to know everything. I don't know what happened to me. I used to be really smart. I knew everything. Uh, I, I was sure that, that, that uh, you know, we were just taught it, that, that Jesus is going to return on the clouds. Kind of like a surfer on the clouds. And, and, and then he's going to suction up all the Christians. Get out of here, and then the world's going to go through tribulation period and all the rest. And maybe some of you believe that. That's fine. Um, I, I, I came to the conclusion that that's, I did believe that for a while, but um, 
I think they're taking some of the, a few passages this way too literally. Uh, I, I came to understand that going out to meet the Lord in the air, it was a common apocalyptic way of, 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 of discussing, of, of uh, communicating, uh, welcoming a king coming home. And, and clouds were always a, you know, a metaphor for coming in majesty and power and all the rest. But it might, it's not literal. The, the, the symbols are there to give us an impression, an impression of what it will be like, but not an accurate description of what it will be like. We don't need a horoscope or a crystal ball or something to give us the details of that. I don't know what it's going to look like. I really don't. And you know what? They, they, they were way off the first time Jesus came. So I suspect all the folks who think they know what's going to happen will be way off the second time he comes. But I do know this. Somehow, some way, God will transform this entire creation by means of his love. He's already in the process of doing that. And, and uh, uh, I don't know, have to know how he's going to do it, but it's everything. It's all important that we trust that he's going to do it and that we long for him to do it, and we're yearning for him to do that. Set the world right, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. By your love, transform this place. And so, folks, Christmas... Time, we, we look back, and, and we thank God for what he did in Jesus when he came the first time. And we tell the story. And the story involves a lot of interesting people like Simeon. But it's also time when we must be looking forward. And uh, I, I now see that I've spent much of my career minimizing that. And it's now just hitting me that, no, this is the hope. The hope is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, for, for a lot of us, I imagine that, you know, you hear about the second coming, and it's portrayed as bad news. And it, it, it could get worse before it gets better. I, I, you know, who knows what the future holds, but, but uh, it may not be a picnic. But for those who understand who he is and what he's up to in this world, this is good news. This is good news. And, and, and it's the hope of the world. I, I have just found that you know, faith is seeing something as a substantial reality, and then you feel the conviction that it will be so. And I've just been meditating on, 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 on just this concept of that God's love wins. I just look, God's, because that's what Colossians 1, 19 and 20 is saying. By means of his love, God's going to win. The ultimate, the, the culmination of this story that we're a part of, that's been going on for centuries and centuries, the culmination of it is, is simply that God's love wins in the end. It's going to transform the world and transform everyone. And I long to see that. And the more, the, 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 the darker that this world seems to get, the more precious that hope becomes. And oh, how precious it, it, it is. It, 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 when, I, when I can really anchor my identity, my purpose, my meaning, my everything in this long story that culminates gloriously, when that is my identity, when my sense of fulfillment is that fulfillment, I, I, it just gives me a, a peace that passes understanding. There's a lot about the future that looks pretty scary. And the more you look into it, the more scary it gets. But you know what? When, when, when you know in whom you have believed and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which he's committed unto you against that day. I can't believe I just remember that song from my Pentecostal past. That's got to be 50 years old. And I know in whom I believeth and am persuaded that he is able. Well, there's a verse that says that. He that begun a good work in us will see it through to the end. And we don't need to know how, don't need to have a crystal ball, whatever. But just believe that God, God does not lie. If you promise that he'll, he'll make it right, he'll return, then... You can take that to the bank. And it just gives a peace that is, the world can't take it away. Because the world didn't give it to you. I pray that we live in this hope, are anchored in this hope. Know that it's a long story, not a short story, and it ends well. And, and, and as we go into the future, hang on to that hope. Right now, people are tanking on hope all over the place. 
And we've got something to offer people. And frankly, there's no other competition. Uh, Either God's love wins in the end, or we're all just part of an absurd joke. (laughs) This is all just a meaningless thing. Well, I'm going to live as though the second, or as though the first is true. That that uh, that God's love is going to win because I've got good reason to believe that God loves win. And if it's a meaningless joke, what difference is? If this is all absurd, and what difference does it make what, what you believe? It all just ends painfully, and that's it. No, the hope of the gospel is hope eternal. King, kingdoms will come, kings will go. Kings will come, and kings will go. Lives will come, lives will go. Styles will come, and styles will go. But Jesus Christ stays the same. <laughs> He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The hope is eternal. Amen. <laughs>